Greetings everyone, my name is Dr. Joseph Boot and I'm the Head of Public Theology for Christian Concern and Senior Fellow for the Wilberforce Academy. It's great to be with you uh, in this Gospel Issues series and joining you remotely from my study here in Canada. Our subject for today is Confronting Secular Culture by Recovering the Christian Mind. Confronting Secular Culture by Recovering Christian mind. So I want to uh, look at some worldview foundations today and think through the cultural moment in which we find ourselves, how we can understand it, and how we can begin to recover a distinctly Christian mind. First then, let's talk about the collapse of the Christian mind. Some years ago, I was uh, speaking in the Santa Cruz area of California, and I was addressing the topic of Christian apologetics. In particular, my subject was the centrality of Christ in the task of engaging the culture, cultural apologetics. And after my lecture, I was taken out to lunch by some very pleasant people, a young couple. And uh, we sat down for some lunch. And the first question they asked me with a little bit of a cheeky smile on their face was how long I had been an apologetic. And I appreciated the joke, of course, but as the conversation went on, it actually highlighted an interesting uh, misperception of the real challenge that is actually confronting Christians today and how we are to face that challenge. I'm actually convinced that the biggest challenge and the most urgent task facing God's people in our time is a recovery of the Christian mind, especially for those in ecclesiastical leadership and in cultural leadership. Uh, it's not simply the training of an elite group of Christian Jedi to defend key features of biblical doctrine against traditional objections. And of course, that was part of the assumption behind the joke of this couple about the Apologedi. And the reason that that is insufficient is because the greatest problem of our era is not actually a lack of arguments or evidences. At a much deeper level, we've experienced in the West the near total collapse of the Christian world and life view and in the culture, of course. But tragically, we've seen that in the church. It's not just in the culture we're seeing the collapse of the Christian mind. It's in the church, often in the church. So we don't just need better techniques in evangelism. We don't just need smarter Christian apologists. What we need is a wholesale recovery, and in some instances, a fresh discovery of what it means to think Christianly and therefore to be Christian. There's nothing short of the reformation of the Christian heart and mind. The questions that actually are challenging believers in the West today, and we'll come to one of them towards the end of this session, are qualitatively different from those we faced 25 years ago, because there is no longer a mutual understanding of reality that can undergird a common discourse. By that, I mean that the old shared foundations that we used to have with our neighbor have eroded beneath us. Let me give an example. It's increasingly unusual to find oneself interrogated by unbelievers 
as a Christian, and especially as a Christian apologist, about the possibility of miracles or the historical reliability of the New Testament text or the particular character and nature of sin or whether good works are enough to make you acceptable to God or whether or not God is triune, unless you're discussing with a Muslim. Most of those questions don't even occur to the millennial and the Z generation young adults because those questions already presupposed an underlying broadly Christian world and life view and a biblical literacy that are not really present at this time. For the first time in centuries, we actually find ourselves in discussion with ordinary people where the Basic religious presuppositions and assumptions about the nature of reality are antithetical to one another. That wasn't true for my parents. It wasn't true for my grandparents. And this situation affects the kind of questions that we each deem relevant to addressing both the everyday existential questions as well as the theoretical problems of life. Now, the pervasiveness of anti-Christian worldviews in every aspect of cultural life has had a profound impact upon the contemporary church. A few cultural prophets saw this issue emerging back in the 1960s. And one such individual was Harry Blamires. He wrote a book in 63 called The Christian Mind, the Christian mind. And I remember reading it in my early 20s. It had a significant impact upon me. And he opens this short classic by recognizing a very commonplace fact for most of us, that the thinking of modern people has been secularized. Nothing particularly radical there. But critically, he goes on to point out that this disaster of the secularizing of the thinking of the people around us he says that's not the primary challenge for Christians today. Well, if it's not the secularization of them, of their minds, what is the primary challenge? He said this, tragic as this is, that is the secularization that we see out there, it would not be so desperately tragic had the Christian mind held out against the secular drift. But unfortunately, the Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervelessness unmatched in Christian history. There is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality. As a spiritual being in prayer and meditation, the Christian strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, that is, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he rejects the religious view of life, the view which relates all problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith, the view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy, end quote. And I think this assessment of Harry Blamire's or Blameyer, was right on point. Given that uh, many professing Christians today don't even accept a biblical morality in the manner that Blameyer's uh, understood in the 60s, 
it's clearly no longer enough to speak of equipping Christians to answer a few isolated questions about their personal faith. As though all we need is a couple of seminars on the top five questions, and if we can answer those, everything will be well. Instead, my contention is we need a renewal and reformation in terms of a comprehensive scriptural view of reality, learning to understand and res uh, learning to understand and respond to the underlying religious motives that are shaping culture today. We need this so that we will be able to reformulate the questions we're being asked in our time by explaining the root and meaning of the unbeliever's own difficulties and queries, both the ones that are real and those that are imagined. And this can only be done from the standpoint of a distinctly Christian world and life view. So it's not enough just to say, let me pop in the question, pull a lever, get out the apologetics answer. No, we need a distinctly Christian world and life view so that we can actually interpret the questions correctly. And this was something that Harry Blemeyer understood. He said this, there is something before the Christian dialogue. And that is the Christian mind, a mind trained, informed, equipped to handle the data of secular controversy within a framework of reference that is constructed of Christian presuppositions. The Christian mind is the prerequisite of Christian thinking. And Christian thinking is the prerequisite of Christian action. That's fairly straightforward. To have a Christian mind, you need Christian thinking. To have Christian action, you need a Christian mind. In the lives of our children, in the lives of our family and friends, almost all of us know somebody usually many people in our network of friendships, in our families who have wandered from an orthodox faith, they've rejected or sidelined biblical truth, they've adopted unscriptural worldviews and lifestyles. In fact, today's believers have witnessed firsthand that the Christian mind and the Christian way of life is collapsing around us. And the band-aid solutions that we've had on offer in the life of the church to this hemorrhaging faith are not up to the task. We need a radical root and branch response to the crisis of our time. And that requires this development of a Christian mind that has a total view of reality and defense of the Christian philosophy of life as rooted in the scriptures. We need a cultural apologetic, an apologetic capable of confronting systematic unbelief that's all around us with systematic belief. Now, by that, for those of you who may be new to Christian worldview and apologetics, I don't mean an elitist intellectualizing of the faith, a kind of new Protestant scholasticism. Rather, I'm talking about a relearning to think and live by the word of God in regard to every aspect of our lives, from human identity and human sexuality to marriage and family to law and politics economics and arts, education, business, media, and everything else besides. How do we rethink to learn to think and live in terms of a scriptural understanding of reality in all of these different areas? Now, what I'm saying, of course, presupposes then that we must think Christianly, thinking Christianly. Some of us may think that this kind of a programmatic agenda that I've just outlined is a little bit alarmist. Maybe it's a bit simplistic. Maybe it's overly radical. Isn't our faith centered in the hope of heaven? 
in an afterlife, in deliverance from this evil world? Why do we need a distinctly Christian view of everything? Because if that's what our faith is about, an afterlife and heaven and our personal relationship only, then everything is not really very important, is it? Why would we need a Christian view of everything if everything is not really that important? Isn't it really only areas of morality and spirituality that Christians and non-Christians disagree? Isn't the vast majority of daily life basically value neutral? These questions actually betray the collapse of the Christian mind that I'm describing. Beyond a very unbiblical diminishing of the goodness and value of creation, a kind of a, a latent dualism there that divides up reality into an upper story and a lower story. The upper story is good, the lower story not so good. In the upper story, we have uh, spirituality and prayer and devotions and religion and faith, and in the lower story, pretty much everything else. So apart from that kind of confusion that those questions betray, we also see here a fundamental confusion that equates Christian uh, or thinking Christianly with thinking about Christian things. And those are two different issues altogether, thinking Christianly and thinking about Christian things. This is the way uh, Blamires writes about it. To think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to man's eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen child of God. You can think Christianly or you can think secularly about the most sacred things, the sacrament of the altar, for example. Likewise, you can think Christianly or you can think secularly about the most mundane things. There is nothing in our experience, however trivial, worldly, or even evil, which cannot be thought about Christianly. The fact that many people are writing about things Christian is in itself irrelevant to the question whether there is still a Christian mind. And that's critically important. That distinction is critically important. Now, to establish that point biblically is obviously essential. How do we know there is such a thing as a Christian view of everything. Well, there's an interesting expression that's repeated uh, often in scripture. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, or some translations render it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now that word translated foundation or beginning in this passage literally means the key or principal part. The key or principal part of knowledge, the key or principal part of wisdom. Jesus makes the same point when he rebukes the misleading interpretations of the law of the Pharisees in Luke eleven fifty two. He says, woe to you experts in the law. You have taken away the key of knowledge. The key of knowledge is the knowledge of God, especially as it's revealed in the scriptures. The apostle Paul actually directs us to Christ himself as the one who alone gives us true understanding. He says, by him, that is by Christ, you were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. Clearly, Paul is saying here that knowing God through Christ affects everything, all knowledge. You've been enriched in everything, in all speech, 
all knowledge, not some artificially restricted spiritual knowledge. Truth and life are not captive, according to Paul, to the meanest meaning, uh, the reasonings, the meanly, meaningless reasonings of unbelievers. Rather, Paul suggests that the unbeliever neither knows truth nor life as they should. The implication of that is that although unbelievers know many things partially, their knowledge of all things suffers from a critical lack. There's something missing. As knowledgeable as they may be about a given area of creation, there is a critical lack in their knowledge. Now, what I'm not saying here, to be clear, is that if you want a distinctly Christian view of quantum mechanics or the mating habits of the common cockroach or the intricacies of human physiology, all you need to do is look up the relevant text in the Bible. The Bible does not give us an exhaustive or encyclopedic knowledge, and it never intended to. Part of the task that's actually given to human beings at the beginning of creation is to observe, discover, name various created entities, understand their functions, and bring out the potentiality of creation by learning about God's laws for all aspects of created reality in light of his word. So a Christian view of all things centers not on finding a proof text for heart disease in the Bible or a proof, te proof text for thermodynamics, but on recognizing Christ as the religious foundation that is the key to all knowledge. That means taking account of what scripture says about God, about his creation, his law, his work in history, in all of our observations, in all of our thinking, in all of our theorizing, in all of our living. It means going to creation itself as well as to scripture to discern the laws and norms that God has established. To reject, though, the triune God and the religious account of scripture, creation, fall, redemption, consummation of all things in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. To neglect that is to make a perilous religious mistake that sets aside the key, the principal part of knowledge, which will in the end misdirect our total understanding. And that's what we mean. Thinking Christianly is to place the fear of God, Christ and his word at the foundation of all of our knowledge. So there's thinking Christianly, then there's thinking unchristianly. Those who reject Christ and the revelation of his word obviously do not have a Christian view of things. But that doesn't make them neutral. It's not that we've got these, like we have a bunch of religious fruitcakes over here and then everybody else is neutral and rational. No, it does not mean they do not have a religious foundation for their thinking, something that takes the place of the living God. Rather, it simply means that the unbelievers explainer for reality will always posit something that just is, that is self-existent, something that doesn't depend on anything else for its being. Uh, as the Christian philosopher Roy Clauser puts it, a divine per se. In other words, something else is put in the place of God as the explainer for reality. Everybody either believes in the living God or will give something else, something created, the status of divinity that belongs only to God. The Bible has a word for that. 
It's called idolatry to place anything in the place of God as the explainer for all things is idolatry. And over the centuries, unbelievers have tried to give divine status to many things from planetary bodies to emperors and states to numbers or ideas, to logical principles, to reason, to matter and energy, to many other things besides. The attempt to replace God and worship the creature rather than the creator, you can look to Romans 1, for example, where Paul describes this, can take on remarkably deceptive and sophisticated forms. Human idolatry is often very sophisticated and dressed up in the language of science and philosophy. These ideas then, these idols, can shape people's thinking and action and through them reshape culture. One common example is when people take the physical and biological aspects of reality or material reality, the material world, and use matter and biology to explain everything else. The physical and the biological are said to be truly real. That's what's really real. And all the non-physical properties of our existence, like our thought, beauty, love, numbers, ethical principles, these are just illusory or they are byproducts of the physical. They're byproducts of what is physical. It's what philosophers called epiphenomenal. They are emergent properties of matter. Everything is then made dependent on the physical, biological facet of reality. That means every other aspect of our lives and every other aspect of, of reality is diminished in status. It's less real. It's less important. It's less significant. We talk about materialism or evolutionism, naturalism. These are based on the idea that what is really real is the physical and biological properties. The importance of this aspect of creation then, are these aspects are overestimated relative to everything else. And everything else is said to be dependent on that. Now, that could be characterized as a reductionistic mindset. By reductionistic, we mean it's an attempt to reduce all of reality to one or more of its aspects. But the Christian mind has a non-reductionist worldview because it doesn't reduce any part of creation in part or in whole to one or more aspects of the cosmos. In fact, we don't even try and reduce the cosmos to God. Scripture unequivocally asserts that there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. That's the foundation of a Christian worldview. This means a total dependency of all creation upon God. Every facet of creation is equally real, with no part reduced in its importance or its role relative to the rest. And that's what marks out a truly Christian mind. Everything in all its aspects, all of creation is immediately, fully and totally dependent upon God, upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who holds all things together by his powerful word. And that means that the immaterial aspects of creation, for example, thought and emotion and ideas of beauty and uh, 
our logical principles and so on, are not higher, they're not more real or more important than our bodies. The earth is not less important than heaven, nor are our spiritual exercises more holy than doing the gardening. In other words, a Christian mind would destroy all of those artificial divisions within creation, all those kinds of separations of sacred and secular, of spirit and matter, and instead, law and politics, the body and human sexuality, art and culture, marriage and family are as important and as subject to God and his law word as church services, prayer and your personal devotions. And that would start to change our perspective on reality, wouldn't it? This might seem a little bit abstract, but the real world consequences of a reductionistic approach to thought the unbeliever's thought, in other words, are devastating when they are consistently applied. Think about the atheistic materialism that helped give us both Nazism and communism that took millions of lives in the 20th century. The kind of pagan uh, philosophy and atheism and materialism of Nazi Germany and the, the Marxist philosophy of the communist world. The loss of a Christian mind always has destructive consequences. So there's thinking Christianly and there's thinking unchristianly. And this brings us to the present predicament of Western culture and what I'm bor borrowing the term, uh, the nonsense machine, the nonsense machine. As with the example of material reductionism, it's also possible to try and make another aspect of creation, the linguistic, the sign mode of creation in concert with our thinking into a divinity concept which determines reality, which is the creator of reality. This particular reduction marks our present culture and constitutes one of the very imposing idols of our time. Let me explain that because it may sound a bit complex. We live in very strange days in the West, don't we? If there was ever an illustration of St. Paul's reasonings of the wise being meaningless, the present cultural posture is a very good example of it. If ever there were a time for believers to see the need for a Christian perspective on everything, uh, that time is now. Think about it for a moment. The verities, the virtues, the norms, that largely went unquestioned for centuries in the West have been subject to radical revision, while the truth has increasingly been reduced to a matter of power and identity politics. Even the notion that human beings have a real and definitive nature and that your ordinary perceptions and my ordinary perceptions about social and biological uh, reality, that they are valid, has been assaulted. The noted English philosopher Sir Roger Scruton has discussed the character of this sustained attack on a Christian uh, view of reality of Western civilization since the mid 20th century. He put it this way, and I quote, the left-wing enthusiasm that swept through institutions of learning in the 1960s was one of the most efficacious intellectual revolutions in recent history and commanded a support among those affected by it 
that has seldom been matched in, by any revolution in the world of politics. That's quite the statement. The goal of this movement, he argues, was not simply the creation of a new kind of academic discourse to entertain bohemian intellectuals living in their echo chambers, insulated in some way from popular culture. Rather, it was nothing short of a social subversion and cultural transformation of the Western world, and it was carried out right under the noses of the so-called bourgeois, the bourgeois that they attacked, the bourgeois that funded these institutions of learning. In a certain sense, their naive donations, the places that I was educated and our children were educated. The justification for this revolutionary action centers on a reimagined concept of liberty. This is what he says, and I quote, two attributes of the new, uh, of the new order justify the pursuit of it, liberation and social justice. These correspond roughly to the liberty and equality advocated at the French Revolution. It means emancipation from the structures, from the institutions, customs, and conventions that shaped the bourgeois order and which established a shared system of norms and values at the heart of Western society. Much of their literature is devoted to deconstructing such institutions as the family, the school, law, and the nation state through which the inheritance of Western civilization has been passed down to us. In other words, what most of us have been raised in, in a broadly Christian context in the past, and what we see as the normal and necessary structures of society and social order, these new thinkers regarded as structures of domination. And those structures must be subverted and destroyed. These ideas have forcefully made their way not just into journals, and to abstract art galleries, but into universities and our courts and our hospitals, our parliaments and our, sen our senates, even into the classrooms of our youngest children. What we're facing today, in other words, is a radical desire for a clean sweep of history. And that's an agenda that's always motivated humanistic revolutionaries. As such, fraudulent and often unintelligible theories of language, ideas about human identity and social order, are passed off as the key to renewal and liberation within human society. And there isn't any understanding of Western culture without grasping this basic revolutionary motive. What is the essential idea of this revolution and how is it re related to language, the linguistic aspect of created reality? Well, the basic idea is this. Meaning is no longer something objective or transcendent. That is, there is no meaning that transcends our human language, human signification. Nothing that transcends our culturally conditioned perceptions and customs. One should not look for objective meaning as such in the thinking and use of language of the revolutionaries, because to look for meaning as such would presuppose that reality has a pre-established givenness. If there's no pre-established meaning and givenness to reality, we can't look for a specific concrete meaning in their use of language. Rather, um, the, the, there is no objective meaning in their use of language. The meaning is the use. 
The way they use and manipulate language to reimagine reality, that's the meaning. There's nothing that transcends their use of language. Language becomes a tool to subvert established meaning because established meaning is oppression. The meaning, the transcendent meaning, the objective meaning is oppression. Meaning as something ontologically real or given is a Christian conspiracy. So by the conjuring of these revolutionaries, new language spells will alter social reality. And that's really what they're doing. They're casting language spells to alter social reality. Roger Scruton has creatively called this assault on meaning and truth the nonsense machine. That's where I get the term, the nonsense machine. By a kind of linguistic liberation from reality and real knowledge, you can eliminate real argument and uh, real reasoned arguments and reasoned engagement so that every question becomes simply one of power and politics. Scruton says, no need to ask what the revolution means or what you might achieve by means of it. Nothing means anything, and that is the revolution, namely the machine to annihilate meaning. Let me give you uh, one very potent example of this. A uh, philosopher by the name of Judith Butler, a very influential user of the nonsense machine. She wrote a book called Gender Trouble. She cultivates a very obscure style. Of course, that's very important if you want to sound profound. And she is a leading lesbian feminist scholar who influenced a whole generation of social theorists to regard the very idea of man and woman as mythical creations of language repetition. Yes, let me say that again. The idea of man and woman as the mythical creations of language repetition. What most people in every culture through all of history have taken to be a real condition, that of being a man or a woman, are for Butler and those following her an imaginary formation. Now notice straight away then, the reductionism involved in this new explainer, this new divinity concept that is to explain everything. Reality is generated by the human intellect and the signs, that is the language that we use and repeat. So we have an idea here, and then we have a language, male, female, man, woman, husband, wife. We use that, we repeat it, and by that we generate our own reality. That's what she's saying. Your language generates reality. Because such reality-denying theories are now taught as facts in Western classrooms to small children, let's not pass over this idea too quickly, just because it sounds radical and bizarre, and it, because it's becoming a legally enforced norm. And I've got two illustrations for you on the screen here uh, from Canada. Uh, we have um, Ronan uh, Ogre here. Uh, a man dressed as a woman in the hallway outside a human rights tribunal. Um, a, a, a BC man was fined $55,000 for referring to this man um, as a man instead of as a woman. $55,000 for referring to this man, Ronan, dressed as a woman, as a man. He's, uh, he's passing flyers out here as well outside of a BC Human Rights Tribunal office before this particular hearing was to begin. There was another case in British Columbia here in Canada, 
where a father was was uh, accused of family violence for calling his daughter a girl. The Supreme Court of British Columbia, Canada, has ruled that a 14-year-old girl can, without pr parental permission, get hormone treatments to change her sex. It has also ruled that the father is guilty of family violence because he called her a girl. Back in February of this year, the girl's father was ordered to stop calling her a girl and calling her by her birth name, which he refused to do. And you can read updates on that case, the latest updates on how that whole thing was going. But this is the cultural situation we're in now. Uh, we have a bill actually before the federal government, the federal parliament here in Canada right now, looking at banning uh, as a criminal offense, uh, potentially all forms of um, therapy. And this would cover all speech, speech from uh, in prayer meetings, speech from the pulpit, from pastors, that would in any way encourage anyone to move away from this kind of confusion. This is the kind of situation then in which we are living. Interacting then very favorably with the writings of another feminist scholar, Monique Wittig, Butler says this. This is what she argues. There is no reason to divide up human bodies into male and female sexes, except that such a division suits the economic needs of heterosexuality and lends a naturalistic gloss to the institution of heterosexuality. A lesbian transcends the binary opposition between woman and man. A lesbian is neither a woman nor a man. But further, a lesbian has no sex. She is beyond the categories of sex. One is not born female, one becomes female. But even more radically, one can, if one chooses, become neither male nor female, woman nor man. End quote. That's Judith Butler, and you can see straight away her thought has permeated, saturated popular culture, a direction that overtly contradicts the foundational teachings of scripture. Notice here as well this very thinly veiled neo-Marxist root of this recreation of the human being, a recreation of the human being. The claim is that the only reason we historically recognize a distinction between male and female is that it suits the capitalist desires of heterosexual men. To pretend that this distinction and relation is natural, that is according to a givenness of nature, which is an illusion for Butler, is uh, all the product of this Christian past. The only reason we recognize these conditions is because of this capitalistic, heterosexual domination, the desires of heterosexual, and in particular, heterosexual Christian men. That doesn't, of course, explain why the vast majority of the world's cultures throughout human history that were not Christian recognize those conditions. But she argues that this is just a gloss. Um, there is no givenness to human nature. It's an illusion. On this view, sex is simply a political and cultural interpretation of the body. Human body parts are a discontinuous set of attributes upon which the language of sex, male and female, man and woman, imposes an artificial unity. And that artificial unity becomes then a language regime that we use, that we all use, that then forms and shapes our perceptions and shapes the relationships through which our bodies are then perceived. In other words, all of social cultural life is then shaped by those 
perceptions. And so Butler quite literally asks, is there a physical body prior to the perceptually perceived body? Remember, your perceptions are shaped by this language regime. An impossible question to decide. An impossible question to decide. In other words, the body's just a perception and perceptions are formed by linguistic signs. If we change those signs, if we change the language regime, we can change reality. The body is less than fully real. This is a parody, you will notice, of creation. A parody, a self-creation parody of biblical creation. Remember, God takes the dust of the ground, forms them into a forms the dust into a man and breathes life into his unformed substance by speaking god created by his word and here you have the idea that we can be as god you can be as god remember the temptation to our first parents and you can take the dust of your desires and the, your ideas and through your words, through a new language spell, speak into existence a new reality. That's a remarkable claim, and it's from a philosopher. It's a parody of biblical creation. Now, if you're not acquainted with this school of deconstruction, it sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? Which, in fact, it is, because it bears no relationship to reality. But it is sophisticated nonsense. It's complex gibberish that makes the un uninitiated people think that in their ignorance they must be missing some very profound insight into the hidden recesses of reality that somewhere in the obscure assertions of these radical intellectuals they're missing something but like the gnostic pretenders in the era of the early church who professed to have a secret knowledge as the key to reality this new Gnostic claim, wrapped as it is in technical verbiage, is in fact pretty simple. What they're saying is the naming of normative sex and sexual relations is an act of oppression. It's an act of domination, and it must be rejected if human beings are to be free, to realize their true selves. Whatever a human being actually is, and they can't tell us, language makes reality. Words are magic. Roger Scruton actually identifies this as a revolution accomplished by the literature and language of spells. He summarizes the effect of it all very well when he says, the resulting nonsense, although it cannot be easily deciphered intellectually, can be deciphered politically. It is directed nonsense and it is directed at the enemy. We are to discard the old hierarchies, the binary structures, the trees of the bourgeois family and the capitalist machine and reform ourselves as grassroots communities of underground activists. The assault is aimed primarily at the language through which the enemy lays claim to the world. End quote. So Scruton, Scruton identifies their enemy as rational argument and truth, but actually behind the assault on meaning and truth, the real enemy is clear. It's God himself. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the creational order that he establishes that lays claim to the world. The contrast between the word of man as magic with the power to remake the world and the word of God as that which governs all things couldn't be clearer in this illustration. 
Can any believer now be in any doubt that there is a Christian view of everything? That there is a truly Christian mind that has to be recovered. We've taken one, an illustration of one cultural battleground that shows us that we must confront secular society by recovering the Christian mind. We must then rethink the task. This is my final point. We must rethink the task. Developing a Christian mind is part of the task given to God's people. It's been long neglected, and we are paying a cultural price right now for our negligence. In all of these cultural battlegrounds, our negligence is costing us dearly. Forging truly Christian thinking about everything is a fundamental part of the mission assigned us in God's covenant. It's part of the cultural mandate given at creation, which has never been abrogated. Scripture actually tells us that all of reality is ordered and structured in complete dependence on the word of God, and that this is the framework for Christian thought and action in every area of life. The origin and destiny of all creation is in Christ, and nothing exists in itself, of itself, or for itself. This confession is our faith foundation. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. From him, through him, to him are all things. This truth implies that as creatures of God, we are actually at home in creation, in the body, embedded within a created reality and attuned inescapably to the word of God. We cannot escape it. We cannot overturn it. Our historical task is to both become and make willing citizens of the kingdom of God as creation is turned into a God-glorifying culture by faithfulness and obedience. Through Christ, the kingdom becomes a redirecting force in history. The Christian mind becomes a redirecting force within history. And this glorious task involves the whole person in every aspect of life. And this obviously includes our bodies, which we've been just been discussing in terms of an unbelieving mind. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.15, The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Now, there's a mystery. Our bodies are part of Christ's body, for all things are created in him and through him and for him. In him we live and move and have our being. The entirety of our earthly existence must therefore become part of Christ, not just the narrow a narrow understanding of our soul, as though that's the real part of us, but our humanity in its integral fullness and unity. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in a manner that rebukes and brings into judgment apostate humanistic culture which hates and denies the body whilst claiming to love it while challenging believers to forge a christian mind what does paul say in romans 12 1 through 2 therefore brothers by the mercies of god i urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Note that the presenting of our bodies to God is our spiritual act of worship. There is no dualism there. There's no two stories in reality. No bit that's more important than another part of creation that's less important. No domain of creation that belongs to God while the other part belongs to the evil one. As Christians, we must not be conformed to the apostasy of this age regarding human identity, human sexuality, marriage, family, law, political life, education people groups, race, anything, we may feel ill-equipped to stand for the truth in the face of all of this, but we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And if you do feel ill-equipped to stand for the truth and to provide a Christian alternative for the redirection of culture, that will only be true in your life if you surrender the word of God and we rely on our own understanding, dependent upon ourselves and our own understanding. If we depend on our own power and understanding, of course we'll feel ill-equipped. If we depend and stand on the word of God in and through Christ, we can have confidence. The late Canadian philosopher Bernard Zilstra wrote that we have lost the strength of the word because of a reliance on, and I quote, visions foreign to the scriptures. All these foreign visions generally have the same effect. The redemption of Jesus Christ is severed from the given condition of life in this world, the Father's good creation. Hence our hesitance in understanding the Bible's kingdom vision. But this is our Father's world, claimed by the new Lord, Jesus Christ. Our task is to regain the biblical vision. And this can be done by faith. The transformation of our minds and the manifest kingdom life of Christ will come to pass by obedience and reliance on the word and omnipotent working of the Holy Spirit. We're now going to take a time for questions, question and answers. Great. Well, I thought that was a fantastic presentation. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Tim Dieppe. I'm head of public policy at Christian Concern. Um, fantastic presentation there from Joe. And uh, I think we have Joe Boot uh, ready to talk to us now live from Canada. Joe, are you there? Here he is. How are you, Tim? Great. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you very much. Really insightful talk there. Enjoyed that a lot. Um, and I know there's quite a few people watching on YouTube and Facebook um, just now. And you can put your comments and questions um, in there, either on YouTube or on Facebook, and we can take them and uh, and discuss them. And I'm going to post some of them to Joe uh, very shortly. We've also got Andrea Williams um, live on online as well. Um, welcome to you, Andrea. Um, and so she can also join in the discussion um, around all this as well. Um, Andrea will come on in a second. So, um, Joe, I've noticed a question here on YouTube. Adam Quibelli, uh, Adam Quibbles, sorry. Uh, question there says uh, Dr. Mola said in a recent book, Christians do not need a political movement but a the theological awakening towards sola scriptura. Are these two mutually exclusive and is the latter sufficient in the way modern Christians seem to approach the separation between Christianity and public square so that sola scriptura 
leads away from and not towards a Christian political platform such as Kuiper. Um, Joe, what's your thoughts on, on that sort of um, dichotomy, if you like? Mm -hmm. Well, I think obviously uh, a, a truly uh, Christian perspective would want to be very concerned with um, the notion of sola scriptura. Uh, so there we can agree with, with Dr. Mola that uh, the church does need a recovery of the importance and centrality of, of the Bible um, as the word of God. I think what the questioner is alluding to though is a potential problem with simply uh, just emphasizing the necessity for uh, a recovery of um, the importance of scripture if that is being set over and against the need for a, uh, a biblical or a scriptural political vision. And think about it this way. We can talk about the infallibility, the authority of scripture till we're blue in the face um, because we can leave that idea in the abstract. It's very easy for Christians to affirm in the abstract that they believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God and scripture is the, is the foundation that we really need. Um, but the question is, do we really believe in the material authority of scripture? That is to say, do we really believe not only in its authority per se, but in its application. And uh, what we actually need to avoid is a kind of theologizing, a kind of privileging of theology, as though what we need is, often when we hear that, is what we need somehow is to recover scripture and then a good theology. But theology is only one of the disciplines, one of the sciences that are subject to the word of God. And of course, you can have very bad theology. What we need is uh, a recovery of the centrality of scripture for all of life. So what does the scripture have to say then in informing a Christian world and life view, as we've just talked about, that will help us uh, develop and will, which will inform a Christian political view, a Christian view of education, a Christian view of the arts, Christian view uh, of law and so on. So I think there's a risk of churchifying and theologizing the question, if, as Dr. Mola seems to have done there a little bit, is to draw a kind of dichotomy between is, well, either you recover the, the solar scripture or you have a political philosophy. No, those aren't mutually exclusive. Scripture informs our view of everything. And that means that our theology and our thinking about ecclesiology in the church needs to be subject to the word of God. And then we also need to subject education and political life and cultural and social life to that same word so if we really understand the full scope of sola scriptura that's where we would hope to get to so that's what we need to be careful of sola scriptura uh in, in terms of a recovery of god's word yes but what about the breadth of its application the material application of that truth and that's what's vitally important yeah yeah i think i think um, you're quite right there. And that sort of links into another question, Joe, from uh, Mark Jones on Facebook saying, what, what part, if any, has lack of regular discipleship played in the encouraging of many adopting secular thinking? And how do you think the church, or what, what role I think it says, you know, how can the church disciple people in a way that addresses the popular trends of secular thinking? Mm -hmm. So is, is a lack of discipleship responsible for many Christians adopting a secular thinking and, and how can the church disciple but, but people to address these trends? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's certainly a, a big part of it. The 
I think, first of all, we have to look at the pulpit and we have to say um, we've had a tendency culturally to to, uh, to speak in these sorts of terms. We will, you Christians will often hear these kinds of phrases, you know, don't don't bring politics into the pulpit. Uh, we need to, um, you know, let's not uh, uh, bring those things where they don't belong. We need to focus on Christ and him crucified. And that sounds incredibly pious, but what it actually really amounts to is saying that we cannot bring the word of God to bear on all of the most important questions and issues that face us culturally. Uh, if we don't bring, it was Charles Spurgeon who said well, uh, that, that that's precisely where politics belongs. Um, it must be made subject to the word of God. And uh, this is true of every aspect of our lives. It's true, of course, of our marriages and our vocational life and our relationships with our children. The Bible isn't just a book for the church. It's a book for Christians. It's a book for Christian husbands and Christian leaders and Christian politicians and Christian lawyers. This is what the scriptures speak to it. They speak to what it means to live the Christian life. Um, not just to ecclesiastical questions. I think that goes right back, doesn't it? I think that goes right back to the kind of the very beginning of your um, talk, where you talked about the fear of God is the foundation um, of wisdom. And when we think of this idea of the authority of scripture, so the scripture, but the absolute application across all spheres of life and how we as a body of believers have somehow allowed ourselves to be relegated to the private sphere. You often yeah. talk, uh, Joe, of the shrinking uh, of the gospel as if it becomes something that it cannot be applied to politics. We, we, it's almost as if we internalize uh, the gospel. We make it entirely personal rather than this idea that you've just mentioned now, or Spurgeon's idea about politics, the whole of life must be subject made subject to the word of God and I think that we see this very particularly in this moment in time when we see um, our response to Covid um, our response um, in Western culture with regard to this whole uh, to the whole Black Lives Matters movement the pulling down of statues these kinds of things um, show that People are crying out for a sense of what is true, um, what um, they, they want something to live for and to die for. Um, but we are seeing so much chaos, so many voices mm -hmm. and no clear idea um, across the whole breadth of issues um, of where a foundation lies of the fear of God. And um, in many ways, it's kind of outworking of the but butler um, so personal construction of truth, even going to to uh, sex, gender itself. Yeah, there's a, there's a few people asking here, though, practically, so the uh, yeah, how do we share God's word on controversial issues like homosexuality or transgenderism? Um, you know, I know that many Christians feel silenced, feel like if they say something on this, say what they really believe on on a whole realm of issues, they'll be considered to be. Uh, racist, homophobic, bigoted, whatever it is, and so they keep quiet as a result. That that's one angle to it. Another angle might be that you have to have, you have to be a victim to have a voice, right? You can't speak on gender things unless you're a woman. You can't speak on racist things unless you're 
racial a particular race or something you can't speak on homosexuality unless you've got sexual attractions of a certain kind and and so on how do we overcome these things and and speak frankly you know proclaim what the word of god really does say well it starts i think certainly with the, the in part with the last question tim um, and andrew has picked up on some critical points there is that um we do have to be discipled and we have to and, and and being a disciple means learning to take the fullness of our faith and the totality of the word of god and learn to surrender our lives and our thinking to it um and that as as andrea has quite eloquently pointed out has been imprisoned in the notion that um true discipleship is about my soul and my personal inward motions and then uh, god willing my going to heaven and that really all these other things um, are just not that important. And it's produced a culture of, of uh, I often use the expression, you know, Toyota Prius Christians. We're hybrids. We're part Christian. We're part humanist. So when all of these issues come up in culture, we're really not sure how to respond because actually we've adopted a humanistic and sometimes even pagan elements, um, the, the elements of pagan and humanistic worldviews. So we don't actually have a Christian mind. And therefore, when these issues come up, we've not been discipled. We've not been discipled in a Christian world and life view to understand how scripture applies. So we find, especially the younger generation, um, adopting or trying to baptize or Christianize um, neo-Marxist ideas, um, critical theory, uh, and all kinds of um, foreign con concepts that are utterly foreign to scripture. And thinking that they are actually now part of this, that this is part of the solution, that, that we can just Christianize these calls um, for justice. Um, and of course, as you pointed out, uh, what we're told by our culture right now is that if you are a Christian, um, and especially if you are a, a, a Anglo-Saxon origin Christian or, or white, I mean, uh, Andrea is Italian. Um, she's not Anglo-Saxon, but... Uh, and we could talk about the, the nonsense, the, the, the nonsensical character of all of that uh, situation. But we feel as though we can't speak, um, that we don't have a voice. But we don't have a voice because we because we don't use it. We've been our own worst enemy. And unless we begin, it's interesting, isn't it? That kind, that that uh, Joe, that that whole thing going back to the you talked about the 1960s and that radical academic revolution in our universities, mm -hmm. which. Um, subjected the whole of culture to um, to a point whereby if you dissent in any way, you are somehow unkind. Mm. Uh, to dissent to this new ideology makes you unkind, and it and it is full out working. It ends up in hate speech, being labelled homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic. And so on, all that language of hate, which shuts down the argument and particularly shuts down the argument from a white Anglo-Saxon perspective. And also this whole concept of loss of history, proper contextualization, uh, understanding eras in which we were, even understanding church history, but understanding our own um, history and buying into a kind of corporate uh, guilt or sense that we have to continually apologize before making statements of right. actual truth. In Deuteronomy uh, 30, verse 16, it says this. See, I says the Lord, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today 
to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, decrees and laws, then you will live an increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land. And that again is the foundation of um, wisdom. The fact the foundation of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and is to love him. And when we love him, we will love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor requires being ourselves subject to the truth and the application of truth. Yeah. And um, if we are passionate Christians, if we absolutely believe in the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us, if we are passionate about the wisdom of God, and we fear him as we acknowledge that wisdom, then we will know that love compels us to speak truth to yeah. those that are lost um, in behavior, uh, in, in a culture that's actually subjugated them to a wrong mindset. In fact, mm-hmm. that's stuff the Judith Butler self. Imagine, imagine being taught under the works of Judith Butler. My daughter was, one of my daughters was at university. Yeah. Um, do our young people have tools mm. to deconstruct that? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, what do you it's think, like, Joe? Yeah, no, we we don't, and in part it's because we've not considered that important because we don't actually believe anymore in a Christian education, and and, and in order to really help young people respond to uh, and to deconstruct the deconstructionist. Uh, you you need a form of, of Christian education. What we're seeing right now is the outworking of a totalitarian philosophy. It's absolutistic. So they want us, they want Christians to to feel that sense of I can't speak in order to keep us quiet. And that's the very thing we can't do. So actually, we sometimes we overcomplicate the issue and we think, well, we've got to come up with some very sophisticated strategy in order to overcome this uh, this victimology that's that's being uh, that's overwhelming our culture, but actually all we need to do is speak the truth. We need to commend ourselves to people's consciences. We need to live in terms of the Word of God, so that you mentioned uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Andrea, just as was said to the children of Israel that if they in Deuteronomy four, if you if you live in terms of this law and if you live in terms of this word, then all the nations around will look and say, who has a God like their God? Who has a law like this law? And they'll be drawn to and attracted to uh, the Christian message and the Christian gospel. And what we've got on our side, interestingly enough, in all of this is reality. Creative mm. reality as God has made it cannot be overturned. I mean, the devil can at- attack it and he can use any kind of stratagem and, and, and ideas that are set up against the knowledge of God and deceive mm. and twist and distort. We cannot overcome the nature of reality and we cannot escape our humanity, our humanness, the mannishness of man, as Francis Schaeffer used to say. And so whenever we speak the truth about gender, about ethnicity, about culture, in terms of the word of God, there is something on the inside of every person that recognizes what we're saying is the truth. And that's often why you get people screaming and shouting and belly because they can't reason with you on the issue. They must shout and they must simply scream louder because what's happened, Andrea, uh, Chantal de Sol, a French philosopher, has pointed this out, is that we the common discourse in the West has disappeared. In order to have tolerance, you need a common discourse. You need a shared set of values. Mm. And because that shared set of values has dissipated, we no longer have tolerance. We just have screaming and shouting and beheading of statues and pulling down everything and let's burn the world. 
let's burn the police, let's destroy the courts, let's bring the world down. It's this old, it was right there in the French Revolution. It's been there throughout all revolutions. Let's wipe history clean. Let's start again. Let's establish a utopia. Let's deny God's work in history. And mm. that's where we've come to. But part of it, as you've rightly said, is that Christians have largely, not all, but largely, we've been silent. Do you we've know, Joe, and perhaps everyone watching now t t tonight, you know, even at this moment in the House of Lords, we have um, the uh, abortion debate going uh, through with regard to the extending of abortion to Northern Ireland, the regulations there. Uh, I, it would be great if the bishops were there, for instance, they've got uh, 26 seats there. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they are, uh, how they might vote. But generally, um, as we've gone into lockdown in COVID, uh, with COVID-19, so um, the anti-life movement within has, has, has taken a grip of, of the institutions and liberalised further their agenda. We had Anne Faraday, the chief executive of BPAS, who wrote a book called The Moral Case for Abortion with a comment piece um, in the Telegraph this weekend, and abortion. So, um, you know, it's Andrea, just a, there's a couple of questions that sort of pick up on what you're yeah. saying about that, that that sort of express frustration with church leaders. Here, one from Heather Scam on Facebook: To what extent is the church a block to transformation? Because it feels like too many of those who are supposed to be our leaders are bound to the spirit of the age. If the church is not preaching the gospel, how can we speak to a secular world? And there's another one, similar lines on YouTube. Um, how do we get church leaders to care enough to lead our culture and shape it rather than merely adopting the culture? Would you like to comment on, on either of those, Joe or, or Andrea? Andrea, you go first. Well, I think it's quite interesting that um, we can often say, well, the Church of England that has a special and unique position, and it does, and so it will be held highly to account, does does not take a clear stand on marriage, on life. And it would be interesting to look at the votes even this evening in the House House of Lords, but certainly on marriage, there's been no stand. But it's the Church of England. But what about the church in England? What does our stand be, the, 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 the true body of Christ, the, the, the believers? And there's a sense in which we have allowed ourselves to become subject to the culture rather than seeking to, to um, speak this truth of um, of saying to the culture, discipling in the institutions uh, to say uh, that all truth, that polit the, the political space should be subject um, to, to the gospel. So during this period, we are seeing liberalization around marriage, no fault to divorce last week, liberalization around life laws. We've seen the state dictating to the church uh, when and how to close, then how to open private prayer perhaps this week it's going to tell us how to worship how to worship then perhaps what parts of the gospel I mean where it goes next is what is acceptable gospel what is acceptable bible that isn't far-fetched in that we've had cases at the Christian Legal Center now for many years where ministers find themselves in trouble um, when they perhaps enter schools um, or state regulated bodies because of what they've preached in churches so this isn't far-fetched, it isn't fantasy, it is coming. And so I say to, to, to churches up and down this country 
that we need to be preaching this stuff from the pulpits. We, our leaders need to speak it. We need to see ourselves as the healing houses in our local communities, as the um, serving the local communities, the education houses, so the, the hospitals and the schools. We need to see ourselves taking our space uh, in those kind of activities in the heart of our local community life where we can in governance at a local level uh, too. But also, and as we do that, we need to be thinking about how we speak into the national culture, how we disciple the national institutions in all the spheres of culture. And perhaps Joe can pop in at this point, building on some of the stuff that I've been saying. Yeah, I think that um, uh, thinking about the, 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 the question there that I mentioned earlier, when we talk about um, politics and typically we're told you know don't bring politics into the life of the church it's interesting how politicized the church actually is um and actually this is what this is what happens when you refuse to bring all things into subjection to the word of god whether it's education law politics all these different areas of life when we don't do that then you actually the result is the politicization of the church which is to say all those people sat under those leaders in those churches have never had their thinking in these other areas made truly subject to the word of God. They've not been brought under the word of God. And so actually there's a, a politicization of the church takes place. And then leaders often are then feel afraid of their own congregations to challenge their own congregations, to challenge their, um, their, their people to think scripturally. So I think that what we have to do now is the, um, the, the as, as, as faithful members of the body of Christ, don't forget that the scriptures teach the priesthood of all believers in that sense, that we are all Christ diaconate. Yes, we have presbyters and elders and bishops in the life of the church and pastors, but all of us are God's priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. And therefore we have to, to accept responsibility as members within our churches to challenge our leaders where we don't see them speaking to these issues. And I think if we were active in holding our own leaders more accountable for uh, uh, speaking to these issues of showing and manifesting and demonstrating leadership, uh, the church would be much, much better off. We have to we have to challenge um, our our leaders. And, um, you know, obviously, Christian Concern has a lot of resources that can help with that. But those are that's that's why Christian Concern in that sense exists so that we can resource leaders to think through these issues and we have to be I, ready. Yeah, to I, I, I think that when I look back at the, my life in, in ministry over the last 30 years or so, if I could rewind um, the clock, I would bend the ear of a lot more ministers a lot sooner. It mm. was, it was when, I, when I was starting out, I felt very much as a young lawyer that my, that my sphere was the legal political sphere, leave the and this, so I'm talking late 1980s, early 1990s. Whereas now I see the absolute importance of the ministers really understanding this in discipling their congregations in order to change uh, to change the public space, um, the proclamation of the whole of the whole gospel into every sphere of of, of culture is absolutely paramount. I don't know how we've managed to so let it go and it really is tragic and i think that even for some of the best preachers in and the best evangelists um in our nation and in the western world generally it's as if the 
the hard issues of the day, sexuality, life issues, abortion, euthanasia, these issues, it's as if they're viewed as secondary issues and not the pri primary gospel issues. Mm. But, you know, if we have uh, 210,000 um, abortions every year, there's blood flowing through the veins, there's death flowing through the veins of a nation. Well, then it, then it can be as well that, you know, if the churches don't teach on it, they end up having members of their congregations having abortions or not knowing what to think about abortions or not, not realizing the Bible's got something to say about abortion or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And and so you end up in a mess, you know, so we can't really avoid teaching about these things. But um, you touched on the point about the churches and not being able to worship uh, Andrea. And there was a question about that earlier on Facebook. Um, Dawn Lizone, is it, um, on Facebook said, what should be our response be as Christians to the fact that secular authorities are currently limiting our rights to meet for worship? Now, Joe, you might want to give a Canadian perspective because you've had some experience of this on, in Canada, and then I'm sure Andrea would like to comment on what we're doing in the UK as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I'll start with the, the, that famous line because it kind of summarizes what we've said so far from, from um, Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a great theologian and, and uh, prime minister for a brief time of the Netherlands. He said that there is not one square inch of the universe over which Christ as Lord does not say, this is mine. And that's mm -hmm. the message that we have to get back into and through the life of the church. And, and actually, th that issue speaks very much to that question, um, because uh, here in Canada, um, we've been and I've been at the forefront uh, with another pastor of leading a campaign to reopen Ontario's churches, Ontario being the most populous province in Canada. And um, we were in a situation very much like the UK of um, indefinite lockdown and of an indefinite lockdown of the church. We were being given numbers like six months, 12 months uh, before uh, worship could take place. And uh, we allowed uh, most uh, people, most Christians allowed, really allowed the notion that the state can say the church is non-essential. It was not listed, yeah. listed as an essential service or essential business. And many Christians and leaders accepted that notion. And what we did is we stood against that and we wrote against it. And we wrote a, a public letter to the premier uh, and to the attorney general and the deputy premier uh, defining what the church really is, that, it's a, that it is established by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that it was the first free institution in the history of the Western world that it uh, is the, the, it's the pillar and support of the truth. It's the embassy of Jesus Christ. And we talked about its historical role in Western society, in all that it serves and all that it does. Um, and, uh, and, and eventually we, um, we actually uh, cited the, the Canadian law, the Canadian charter, the Canadian criminal code, um, in order to argue that unless the churches were reopened, um, in terms of this recognition that there are various spheres of life in society and they are all under the governance of Jesus Christ and the state cannot just swallow all the others as though the church and the family and the vocations are just parts of the state. They're not. They are they're spheres uh, of, of sovereign spheres under the Lord Jesus Christ. They interact, of course, but they can't all be swallowed in parts to whole fashion. And this was our argument. And in the end, we um, had a, a constitutional lawyer stand with us as we entered into this formal discussion with the government and their bureaucrats, the, the um, 
uh, the, uh, the office of the chief medical officer. And we, by the grace of God, prevailed upon them. And as of um, this past Sunday, um, the, the, the churches were allowed to reopen at 30% capacity uh, without any restrictions on singing and prayer and so on and so forth. Just because the church, we, that there was leadership and we took a stand. And that's the thing we've been thanked for the most. We had in the end 450 churches in Ontario signed our letter. The first wow. one, we wrote a second one. And as well, actually, the Orthodox Jewish community then joined us as well because they were looking for freedom of worship. And we had to educate the bureaucrats on what freedom of religion, freedom of worship, the role of the church in, in Canadian history and Western history actually is. And when we it's that, we've been ashamed, isn't it? It's as if we've been ashamed to take our place in public life, to make claim right. of the position of Jesus Christ and allowed mm. ourselves to be viewed on as a sort of as a social service, open to do your food banks, open to do some care, but not viewing the very the government under God. Yeah. What church actually is there to do as as an essential service. You know, today Primark has opened. Primark mm -hmm. doesn't do online. There have been queues. How can we trust how can the government trust Primark to open? Uh, but yeah. render the um church as non-essential say that marriages can't take place even small marriages the idea that we cannot respectfully respecting the situation that we're in respecting yeah. the need for safety mm. say that men and women um, can be married because you see even the notion that people have to wait that they can't that um or this this idea of purity into marriage is something is a concept that the government can't even fathom or that society can't uh, fathom and they close us down on that issue. They're closing us down on the idea that, um, well, it's, it's to be but honest. Until we've written a letter to the government, haven't we, about yeah, this church yes, thing? Do you want to speak about that? Why don't you speak about that, Tim? Well, fine, yeah. So we've, you know, we've not got as many as 40, 450 leaders that Joe got. We've got 25 leaders and, and counting more, 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 more said we want to join you since uh, to challenge the government lockdown on exactly these, these bases of freedom of religion and the autonomy of the church, that the church ought not to be blanket governed by government in this way and, uh, and restricted so that today, while the shops are opening, as Andrea said, uh, you can only go into a church for private prayer. If you happen to pray with other people, that would be illegal. At the yeah. same time, you are allowed in a church to, to offer a food bank, but not any kind, any kind of prayer meeting. This is crazy. Yeah. And it's completely disrespectful of Christian ministry and of freedom of religion and of the historic role of the church and of the importance of spirituality and spiritual life. And so we're trying to challenge that. And um, I really hope it makes a difference. I, yeah, I'm, we've been I, pushed yeah. back, it'd be Great. fair to say. We've been pushed back by the government quite hard. They've gone to mm. one of the leading council in the country on this issue. Um, and they've come back feeling buoyant. You know, you can stay closed. Um, we haven't, we didn't mm. make this an open letter. I believe that if we were to make this an open challenge, I think we get many leaders are coming in behind us. But the government is very clever because what the government says is this, we've got a task force. We're speaking uh, to religious leaders of all faiths. Um, mm. We're hearing their views, be patient. We're hearing what's gonna happen. We're gonna, we're gonna do this by consensus, but what they, it, what, it's consensus to manage. It's mm. consensus to manage. We're gonna do a little bit of individual prayer. Then perhaps yeah. it will, will throw you another little bit of something in yeah. two or three weeks time. And, in, and what this will mean in effect mm. is will be here will be managed by the government 
with the mm. buy-in of other leaders that are mm. yeah. that think there's consultation in some kind of roundtable in truth and um, there's yeah, being yeah. mentioned how uh, by via zoom of some kind how is that real con how how is that really dealing with the issue where is the trust mm -hmm. uh, well, for we, uh, what we did is with the government here tried to throw us a bone and said you can have drive-in services where everybody's shut in their car and you know you can't get out of your car and of course that doesn't work for inner city churches so what we did we just pushed back on all of that what we did is we took a Pauline approach. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul at one point says, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? And he insists actually after imprisonment in one instance that the magistrate lead him and, and Silas to freedom publicly. And eventually, of course, Paul appeals uh, his case all the way to Caesar. And so one of the things I said, Andrea uh, and Tim, on this uh, in this meeting with the government was I said to them, I pointed out, first of all, that uh, worship and work are not rights conferred by the government. They are pre-political. The civil government doesn't bestow on me a right to worship or bestow on me a right to work. Those are given to me by God. And like yeah. you, we were seeing all kinds of businesses open up with hundreds and hundreds of people. We were seeing essential services with hundreds of people working in factories throughout the whole situation. And we were seeing zero accommodation for the church and so we wanted to challenge that and in the end i said to them i said if the state forbids what god commands or commands what god forbids civil disobedience is a christian duty and i said to them uh respectfully and great and kindly i said that if you do not make accommodation for us this can go one of two ways you can either do that and uh, treat us in a fair way, just as all these businesses are being treated, then you can recognize the significance and importance of what the church is, uh, or we're gonna start meeting anyway, and you can just come and arrest us. And, uh, and I said that to them twice. Um, and I, I, I said to them, look, I understand that the vast majority of you in this meeting do not understand what the gospel is. You don't understand the church and you don't understand this history and i said i'm not blaming you for that but i'm telling you what it is and i'm saying that you can either have a sense of order to this reopening and start opening up uh so that we can be responsible and respectful or we're going to have to meet anyway with our own mitigation strategies and you can just come and ticket us or arrest us and uh it was within 24 hours i received the call from an mpp saying policy is being put in place you're going to hear on monday the churches can open and I think that it was an illustration here. Great work, very, Joe. Great. Very, 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 yeah, um, made, the same, made the same happen with us. Make pray for us, Joe. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and everyone fantastic. watching, please pray that we yeah. the same that our government would respond yeah. in a similar way in these next day. In and Andrew, we've got a question on Facebook here. Amy Thomas, yeah. how can more church leaders get involved and share their support on this issue? That, and, uh, that, uh, that's a great question, and I think that what we want would, would be great is for you to write into Christian Concern via via the the, the website. Um, and um, we don't yet have a landing page as Joe did around um, all of this, but we've certainly got the all of the information about our uh, legal uh, about the claim about the letter that we've written to government. And I think Tim um, Tim heads up the policy at uh, Christian Concern. We, we went this way deliberately um, at the beginning, um, trying to bring a network uh, of church leaders uh, together in order to make this case to, to, to government because we wanted to have a very speedy 
um, action. But I think that going forward and given the kind of the government pushback that we've had, what may be really excellent is to open this up and get as many church leaders as we can signing on to this um, this letter before action, which in fact will become a claim within the court in within the court by way of judicial review. Um, it'd be great to get leaders doing that. So I think we should, Tim, speak seriously about this um, tomorrow um, and get a landing page done so that we can have um, a mark of those that are supporting this action that we're taking now, getting increasing public profile. So I think that's something that we need to set to, um, given that our efforts thus far have been met with um, some pushback. But we won't, we don't, we don't give up. Christian Concern, you know that we never give up. We press on. But I have felt weighed down um, today and yesterday. I really feel this stuff from my little space um, mm -hmm. in lockdown. Um, this because of the um, there's a such an extraordinary sense um, of acceleration for evil at the mm -hmm. moment in terms of around around the protection of the unborn child it's brazen um the brazen disregard for the unborn child the in this marriage, period marriage time, as well yes in this period of time saying that a, a woman can access abortion by sending a couple of pills through the through the post it's been shocking no fault divorce essentially within a it's easier for me to get out of my phone contract than um, it's, no, harder for me to get out of my phone contract. Harder for me to get out of my contract with Apple than it is with um, out, out, of, out of my marriage with my husband. I mean, what this is this is complete. Um, this is this is this is chaos. Uh, we've had a we've had a judge against the wishes of a man who changed his mind. With regard to wanting to live, order the, the shutting down of um, his machines of the hydration and nutrition. All of this has gone on in in. in and he in died. And he died. And he died. He he died last yeah. week. That really yeah. that's really hit me. It's it's horrific. And and mm. it's it, as as if as no matter how how bad does it get? How, how bad? I mean. Well, this I is my this is I'm going to want to conclude on this question, really, yeah. Andrea, which is. You know, this this is my question, Joe. Sort of, when when does society realise, or well, when will society realise we've given over to a nonsense machine, right? Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, is that what will happen one day? Will we one day all wake up and think, hang on a minute, how do we how we end up being governed by a nonsense machine? Will we wake up one day? How do you see this playing out? Well, I think that um, we are. We have to acknowledge that we are an end stage culture. I mean, Andrea is describing the. Uh, the, the the attributes, the characteristics of an end stage culture, the collapse and regarding as worthless life and family and marriage, cultures that do this do not survive. And um, our culture is under judgment and we deserve to be judged. I think the critical question that, that confronts Christians right now is how are we going to rebuild? You know, we've talked about deconstruction and how the deconstructionists have for uh, 60 years or so been deconstructing our society. And of course, we haven't got time to talk about all the philosophical roots of that, but they've been deconstructing 
um, yeah. remnants of Christian civilization, while the church has largely stood, stood on the sidelines or even applauded. Um, and as liberalism itself ran uh, th throughout the mainline churches. And, and Andrew has really been describing, and you've described, Tim, really the, the essence of the problem is the dualism in the life of the church, that we really don't view creation and culture as that important. If we did, we wouldn't be satisfied with virtual church. And I would encourage the listeners to, to, what, to read my article on that on the Christian Concern website if you haven't read it already. If you've got an abstract faith, uh, if you have a, a kind of a, a Gnostic faith, that it's just about this secret, private, personal knowledge, then of course you could, the, the, then your church might as well be privately in your bedroom, in your front room on Zoom. But the notion that you can have uh, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, fellowship, the life of the body of Christ virtually is a myth. And, and the, the fact that there's not more resistance to this is illustrative of this dualism, that, that, that this world and this creation that is made by the Lord Jesus Christ, loved by God, that's being going to be, according to Romans 8, released from its bondage to decay, just shows you how, how defective our thinking has become. And I think that the, as to the question of, I think probably both Andrea and I and you, Tim, have thought many times over the last 10 years, surely now with this latest thing, people are going to wake up and realize that this has all gone wrong and it doesn't happen. Well, how crazy can it get? Yeah, transgenderism it get? Is a, it, it, you used the example of transgenderism and, and it's crazy. It's so obviously contrary to truth. And yet, right. and yet here we are, we've had JK Rowling in the last week say someone who menstruates should be called a woman and absolute vitriol and pushback and fight back and, and, and demonization and nobody should buy her books evermore and all this kind of stuff goes on. Yeah. And you sort of think, gosh, how do we get to this point? Yeah. I often say, if you had said to me when I was a student lawyer in 1985, 86, 87, if you had said to me that my life would, much of my life would be spent defending Christian nurses who offered prayer, who'd been suspended from their jobs, or who'd given a Bible, or that a magistrate might lose his job for saying uh, children do best with a mother and a father, if you had if you had said to me that people would lose their jobs um, or that even that marriage in 1986, the idea that marriage could be between two men and two women. And if you didn't conform to that, that you would be it could potentially be viewed as hate speech or you would be be investigated by um, prevent the counter extremism um, group because um, because you're a teacher and we've had three teachers investigated by prevent for holding that view i mean it would have it was would have it would have seemed um totally impossible um but it has been our reality yeah um, and, and therefore i think that what we have to do uh, tim andrea is we have to announce the wake-up call to the people of god because ch the church uh, god's people are pillar and support of the truth and the question becomes, as this all starts to come down, and I think it's so symbolic when you see, and it's happened in Canada, it's happening in the US as well, as you know, it's happening in the UK. When you see, when you see the statues of, 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 of great and good people, sinners like the rest of us, you know, I mean, if you take down the portrait or the statue of every sinner, there are no portraits or statues left up. So it goes without saying that our portraits and our statues are going to be of people who are sinful. Um, but nonetheless, when you see those being pulled down or beheaded or thrown down and so forth, you recognize that you are looking at the effort to destroy 
the past. And yeah. God has never been about the destruction of the past. He's about uh, the, uh, uh, not about revolution, but about regeneration and renewal. And I think the question for us as believers today is, as things fall apart around us, where will the voice of clarity, truth, life, hope, joy, and yeah. a message of reality that still does resonate with the hearts of people because they are inescapably connected to creation and to God. Um, mm. Where is that going to come from? And I think that we would be surprised. The churches in Britain and in Canada would be so surprised that if they came forward with a voice of clarity, of grace and truth, the, the numbers of people within our social order who would say, this, this direction over here of total destruction, it's not working. What yeah. are these people saying? Because this seems to be yeah. a message that resonates with my heart. Yeah. Um, and that's how the that's the power of the gospel. Because the revolutionary right. act in some ways is, is what the love of the law of God, what the love of God brings. Mm -hmm. When you when you really love him, he compels you to holiness and beauty and truth and order his ways. And so the, mm. actually marriage as God made it, the family as God made it, um, his behave, his rules um, are what looks reject well it's regenerative you you're the way yeah. you say not a revolution but rather regeneration. It's, it's regeneration um and that can make heal people and make people whole and where people are being broken by the mess is why i say you know the reason why pre-covid the gp surgeries were full is people were depressed and lonely and hurting because they were confused the church can make things clear the church can help, will help people to heal. This is why I always say, let's be the 24 seven places open because we're essential, because we yeah. have the essence of life, the yeah. truth, the way, the wholeness, the beauty, the restoration, the goodness. That's what we have is a glorious good hope. That's why we need to be open. We can't be relegated. We've got to be open everywhere to provide the healing house. That's Great. who we are, the healing people uh, with a new way and a new purpose. Great. Um, Anyway. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. That was a Thank great you. evening. I enjoyed that discussion and, and great talk, Joe, as well. Thank you for joining us on YouTube or on Facebook. Um, I hope you enjoyed that nearly as much Thanks as I did. Um, I really learned from it and been challenged and inspired by it as well. Um, well so thank you so much to Joe and Andrea for being with us um, for that and for all your input um, over that. And thank you for your questions and comments as well on Facebook and YouTube as well. Um, we'll look forward to doing another one of these on Monday, the 6th of July. Uh, we're, we're very pleased we've got Tony Wachinski, who is the head of Coalition for Marriage. And he'll be talking about uh, should the government promote marriage where well, you've just been hearing about what the government said about marriage recently um so i think that'd be a great talk i know he's very well informed and very enthusiastic on the subject put that in your diary that's monday the 6th of july and we'll join you there we also have facebook uh, and youtube live events at 1 p.m on fridays if you're able to join us then or you can watch them later uh, we discuss the week's events and the week's news on those as well so have a great evening good to connect with you and i look forward to seeing you again very soon thank you